Earlier this year, I visited South Africa, where I was born and where I grew up. During my time there, I celebrated my 42nd birthday with my mother, who still lives there. I had a lot of time on my hands, and my thoughts returned again and again to my childhood. I spoke to my mother about her pregnancy, about my childbirth, about my infancy, about growing up. It was a wonderful thing to do. For those of you who haven't met her, she's a highly spirited and gutsy 72-year-old woman. I imagine that those months within my mother's womb were ones of great interconnection for us. I'm sure for many human beings it's a time of the greatest interbeing in the cycle of human life, being held in and caressed by all that water kept warm by her body. Her nourishment nourished me. And then the comfortable sound of her heartbeat close by, ever-present, regular, dependable. Feeling also her protectiveness, her love, her care, and her joyful expectation in a myriad of ways. We spoke about all these things. Perhaps feeling the expectant hands of others on the womb, sensing their excitement as I kicked inside. What a wonderful time I imagine that must have been. And then, of course, it's abruptly over. Out we come into the world, tender, vulnerable, and completely dependent, obviously shocked by all the surprises, the painful movement through the birth canal, the severance of the umbilical cord, and then the confusion of being bodily inverted and whacked by a stranger, as happened then. All the brightness, all the harsh lights, all the new sounds. How important the affection and the, and the care of the mother must be at that time particularly. So too the love and support of the father and others that hopefully all this outpouring will outweigh the pain of all the changes. The infant must have great trust. I imagine a cellular assumption that his or her needs will be universally and lovingly taken care of, as they were back there in the womb. When last did you see within the being of an infant that bright, wide-eyed, simple and open receptivity to all that is needed to support that child's movement into growth and into wholeness. And yet for some of us, regretfully far more of us than anyone formerly realized, this trust and innocence is shattered by deprivation, betrayal and abuse of all kinds. Sometimes there is not much time between childbirth and the beginning of violence done to that child. Research indicates that possibly as many as three American one in three American children have been abused by a parent or by an adult in a position of trust in the family. By both men and women, homosexual and heterosexual. For the abused person, it's a tragedy that usually touches so many aspects of human life. What is clear is that the experience of abuse, be it sexual, 
physical, verbal, psychological, or the abuse of neglect and deprivation, all leave the child with a legacy that is to a degree crippling, insidious, deep, and shattering to the body and the psyche and the spirit of the growing child. The surest way to deny a child the time and space to discover his or her capacity for self-love and admiration is to abuse him or her in some way. The abuse of children is perhaps the greatest violence that human beings do to one another. So often born of relationships where love, trust, care, and respect for the child is jettisoned in favor of the confusion, titillation, satisfaction, and sickness of the adult. I was sexually and physically abused from a very young age, and the pattern of abuse continued into puberty, adolescence, and the teenage years. This evening I'd like to explore the possibility of transforming the legacy of sexual abuse. I was speaking to a friend earlier this evening and she said how much she loved eclipses. And I realized that I also loved eclipses. And the reason why I do is that it's such a wonderful gesture of nature, of the light reclaiming itself from the shadow. And I feel like that is the spirit in which I've prepared this talk and in which I, I offer this talk to you this evening, reclaiming our light. For me, the meditation has been a central tool in grappling with the effects of what happened. Whilst it certainly has not been the only tool that I've chosen, I feel that the practice has opened up possibilities for healing and understanding that have been vital for recovery. I'd like to share with you some of the lessons that I've learned along the way. I'd like to focus first on remembering. I was sent to a boarding school in South Africa when I was nine years old. Mostly I've remembered well the things that happened there. I was regularly beaten up by a teacher he used a hosepipe and a leather strap on my backside and across my back. He would humiliate me when we were alone, and he took great delight in ridiculing me in front of the other boys. I vividly remember the black and blue welts across my back, which he forbade me to show anybody. Corporal punishment was within the fabric of life at this school, so what this meant was that I, like many of the other boys, was regularly caned and strapped. Furthermore, I was sexually bullied by older and bigger boys and often forced to participate in sexual activity with them. I was not popular at school. I was really largely ostracized. And my seven years at this all-boys boarding school in Kimberley, South Africa, were really horrible. During my first long retreat in the early 1980s, in a maelstrom of fear and confusion, I suddenly realized that all that had happened in those years was deeply wrong. It was as though a movie of those years began playing, and I saw all that happened in an entirely different light 
from a completely different perspective. Even though there were aspects of what happened that were titillating and satisfying, I realized for the first time in my life that I was not to blame, that it was not my fault, that it should never ever have happened, that I'd been severely betrayed by those that I trusted, and that I'd been subjected to immense violence. It felt like a huge relief, that knowing. I'd never before, even for an instant, felt that I wasn't fully responsible for what happened. Consequently, I never spoke about this to anyone. Ten years later, I began to access a sense of much earlier abuse. Over weeks, it became clear that <clears throat> the violence had begun long before boarding school, in my infancy. A pattern of sexual violence began in my first months, and that lasted a number of years. The memory is not visible, but it's indisputable in its clarity. I experience it primarily in the senses of touch and smell. For some of us, the memories of what happened are clear and always have been. For others of us, there is perhaps a sense of abuse of history, but no clear memories yet. And for others, the specifics of history are slowly revealed in the process of healing. In my experience, I have found that there are some pitfalls and dangers related to the process of remembering. I'd like to explore these, if I may. I feel one should not lose sight of the fact that what is ultimately vital is the effect of history in the present. It is possible to become obsessed in our efforts and determination to recoup memories that we suspect are there. We perhaps become so entangled in the effort to remember that our emphasis shifts away from dealing with the present effects of the trauma. And for some it is in the engagement of the present that the memories of the past begin to reveal themselves. My own experience is that memories arise in the, natural in the natural process of the unfolding of healing. I emphasize that it does seem vital that we do all that we can to recoup memories, be it through psychotherapy, body work, meditation, group work, hypnotherapy, whatever, meditation. But I do know people who have put life on a desperate hold in an attempt to remember what is perhaps not yet ready to emerge. And this seems tragic, and I speak here from my own experience too. We need to be carefully aware of our relationship with remembering what happened. There are so many attitudes to life that indicate the likelihood of abuse of some sort. Even without memories, it is ultimately the engaging of these attitudes and the related emotions that open us to the possibility of freedom and relief, and perhaps memories too. Within myself, these attitudes are clear. 
I see that it is a deep pattern to feel victimized by circumstances in life, receiving life as threatening, self-punishing, malevolent, rather than as opportunity. Experiencing fear of physical and emotional intimacy and closeness is a common part of the legacy of abuse also. For me too, I see that the feeling tone of difficult emotions like fear, anger, and sadness is sometimes very young, and this indicates to me that perhaps the origin of these emotions is from a time long, long ago. And then for many, the experience of feeling out of control, hopeless, worthless, are all part of the legacy too. In meditation, we open to the truth of the legacies. For me, I see it is so easy to receive these difficult attitudes or emotions with a sense of blame, frustration, victimization, anger, denial, avoidance. And then opening to these attitudes of non-acceptance becomes the next step in our journey back to wholeness. Being willing with immeasurable patience and tenderness to enter and be with those difficult truths of what we live with is the enduring challenge of meditation, and it's certainly not easy. Remembering. Next, I'd like to speak about or explore speaking out. Twenty years after leaving boarding school, I returned to South Africa again. And I returned to the school that I'd attended all those years before. I'd prearranged meetings with the headmaster and several others who were there during my time at the school. I spoke with the students, I spoke with the teachers, and I told them everything that happened while I was there. I said to them that they need have no concern about the accuracy of what I was saying, that in the process of meditation, we sometimes are able to go back to chimes in our childhood and re-experience those times, free of all that forced us to shut down and close down all those years ago. It was a great unburdening for me and an affirming of myself in a place which had stripped me of all sense of self-worth and self-respect. I learned that for me, confronting the perpetrator was a precious step in the return to wholeness. Not vital, for in some cases it may not be possible. Those involved may be dead or inaccessible, or it may just not feel safe to confront certain people. Would you like to come back? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> it may not feel safe to confront certain people. And in my case, the person who abused me when I was an infant was no longer alive when I began recollecting what happened. What is always possible, though, is to acknowledge overtly and inwardly, 
in ways that are appropriate the truth of what happened. Always remembering that recovery is a fiercely personal collage. There are no absolutes, no rules, and no shoulds. The journey back into our hearts is absolutely individual and utterly unique. The meditation has enabled me to be carefully aware of my motivation and intention in speaking out and confronting others. For if we do this truth-telling in a way that is hurtful, unkind, revengeful, and uncompassionate, we keep the cycle of violence turning. On the other hand, with discriminating wisdom and a clear comprehension of the situation, I feel that it is possible to speak truth powerfully and forcefully in a way that is both healing and appropriate and which in the end removes us from the orbit of someone else's nightmare. I'd like to speak personally, if I may, for a moment. Over the years of engaging the effects of what happened, and it's been 10 years now, I've shared this journey with both my mother and my father up until he died three and a half years ago. It was very difficult for both of them and particularly difficult, of course, for my mother last year when I told her what happened in my second or third month. Some people strongly felt that I had no right to share this difficult information with these two elderly people. And I know that for me and us, the truth has been very different. And I can assure you that I perhaps gave the most careful consideration to the decision to tell them. Perhaps it was the most difficult decision of my life. In the careful truth-telling, though, of what happened, immense healing has happened in the family. No longer do we protect one another from what is difficult. Rather, we live with a trust that the truth, no matter how challenging, will be brought forward and shared. And this is a world apart from the way things used to be. Speaking out. How do we further engage this legacy of abuse? Certainly one of the most freeing aspects of the meditation practice is its non-conceptual nature. The ability to increasingly relate to to experience free of the overlay of ideas, theories, words, opinions, is in my experience both a great relief and a movement towards simplicity and truth. In relationship to abuse, how we hold this fact in our minds, how it is conceptualized, feels so important. If the abuse evolves into something solid, rigid, and unchanging in our minds, that means that we are relating to the issue in a way that precludes change, healing, and evolution. For example, if I relate to myself as a sexually abused man and invest that label with great emotion, perhaps even status, I'm assuming a very fixed and limited identity into which I'm feeding a lot of energy and investment. And in our world, the word abused is so loaded and charged. 
it can easily become a straitjacket over which we stumble in our efforts to be free. There are advantages, though, to keeping the abuse solid, questionable though they might be. It can become something in our lives that appears unchanging and familiar, and from which we can relate in a threatening and sometimes precarious world. Furthermore, it is a place of supposed security, hellish though it might be, when so much of life feels unstable, undependable, and perilous. Keeping it solid gives us a sense of identity, the abused man, the abused woman, the wronged, the betrayed, the victim. While what happened was unquestionably wrong, solidifying and perpetuating the struggle seems to be a movement in the opposite direction and certainly not a movement in the direction of the alleviation of suffering. I feel that the challenge for those of us that are dealing with abusive histories is to hold this legacy of what happened in a way that is true and potentially freeing. Would any of you on the steps like to come forward? There is some place in the front. You're okay? looked at remembering, keeping it solid, <coughs> and it's speaking out. The last thing I said was I feel the challenge for those of us that are dealing with abuse is to hold what happened in a way that is true and potentially freeing. And the immediate question then that must come to mind is, what is the truth of the abuse? Well, in meditation, we come to deeper and deeper insight into the transitoriness of all phenomena. Nothing is unchanging, no matter how deep the exploration goes. What this means is that any way in which we relate to ourselves that denies this change is a contradiction of what is true. If we have been abused, we are not left with a fixed quota of rage, terror, grief, and pain. Neither has it left us with a specific mantle within which we must now cloak ourselves. Rather, the experience of abuse leaves us, in my experience, with a specific and individual patterning of conditioning. It is as though we were wired in a way that brings forth certain responses when our buttons are pushed in special ways. In meditation, it becomes increasingly apparent that working with and understanding this process of conditioning is a vital step in making the legacy of abuse workable. A few examples. We might see how circumstances of intimacy condition fear seeing the cause and effect at work, seeing how certain people 
images, situations, memories, condition rage and terror and shame. Seeing the cause and effect relationship between the body and the mind, how being touched in certain ways creates anger and panic perhaps in our lives. How having one's sense of boundary and autonomy violated brings forth rage and fear. All patterns of conditioning, we see these more and more clearly in the meditation. We see as abused men and women that we were conditioned, we were wired by the abuse and that these patterns to some degree are active in our lives now. Can we develop a malleable relationship with an abusive history by exploring the pattern of conditioning that the experience left us with? I have found that this makes the suffering and heartbreak of the abuse of history more workable and fluid. I personally even try not to use the A word anymore, not in denial of what happened, but to remove my relationship with history from a word that is for me charged and fixed. When I do speak about what happened, I try to be specific, if necessary, and appropriate. Otherwise, I merely acknowledge this piece of my history and let go of the rest. I know many people, and I speak from my own experience here too, who wield their abusive history like a weapon both against themselves and against the world. I don't believe that this attitude directions one towards the possibility of healing and freedom. It becomes its own prison. And that seems tragic. The meditation practice enables us to know and to understand these patternings of conditioning, this wiring, so that with wisdom and compassion, we can make choices in our lives relating to people, to intimacy, to situations that do not unnecessarily push our buttons and create suffering. And then there is the question of fear. And I refer you to a talk I have given here, Beyond the Grip of Fear. I will speak briefly about fear this evening. <clears throat> Having known enormous terror as a child, it, it can become part of the fabric of later life. Often when abused, we find it easier to trust fear and gloom rather than joy and love. It, is it then possible in the meditation to welcome joy and love equally with the other emotions that are far more familiar to us. I have made a practice of wholeheartedly acknowledging, knowing and celebrating the times of joy and lightness when they arise, becoming familiar with these new friends. On the other hand, how do we work? with periods of extreme terror and panic, which the abused person knows so well. This is a huge topic. Briefly, I suspect that to 100% heal the fear requires 100% love. 
bringing a loving acceptance and patience to the fear, to the terror, and to the panic, where and whenever they arise. Becoming a friend of the fear. It is absolutely true that in moments of abuse, we contracted in fear, we armored ourselves in terror, and survived to do our healing work now. I'd like to speak personally again for a moment, if I may. I recently have come to realize that I have lived almost all my life with an ever-present sense of fear. I never realized this before, for the fear was as familiar to me as breathing. Recently, I've known interludes when this fear has subsided, and this has enabled me to acknowledge the fact that what happened over 40 years ago conditioned, conditioned me to a life of fear and withdrawal that has endured all these years in a subtle and insidious way. And so the challenge is, can our awareness be that sensitive that we come to know even the most subtle shadings within our minds? Can we befriend the fear rather than banish and reject it, perhaps in ways similar to how we ourselves were marginalized and ostracized so long ago? Sometimes beyond our sleepiness, beyond our physical pain and depression, our patterns of fear, and I've certainly seen this in my own experience, these patterns waiting for the healing light of our awareness and our love. Of course, they are likely to be patterns of anger too. Anger, rage, aversion, self-destruction also. The next talk that I'm going to give here in the middle of the year sometime is on anger, self-hatred, and the power of love. I'm going to be brief here about anger, too. As with all emotions, the challenge in meditation is to see these energies as empty, changing, and not self. Seeing clearly that, indeed, there are no reservoirs of anger and fear that need to be tapped and emptied but rather that these emotions arise because of causes related to the patterning of conditioning that is there because of what happened so long ago. In meditation, we see that these emotions are not personal, that they arise and pass away, and that ultimately, no matter how violent and strong they may seem, they are workable. It is a powerful transition for the abused woman or man to move away from being a victim of fear, anger, rage, and terror, to relating to these challenging emotions as opportunities for healing. Anger. Upon this journey of recovery, we are called to enter so many facets of our woundedness. In my experience, the meditation is an invaluable tool for exploring the difficult areas with love, patience, 
acceptance and wisdom. The ability to be with aspects of ourselves somewhat free of the shackles of discursive thought, aversion and distraction is a priceless gift of compassion and forgiveness for ourselves. To touch the surges of self-loathing and self-hatred, self-flagellation with tenderness and mercy is a movement towards healing and towards the deepest recovery possible. And then opening to sadness is a part of the journey for the abused person also. Opening to the loss of innocence, the loss of virginity, self-worth, trust of others, the loss of a sense of safety, opening to the sadness of the loss of time. We open to feelings of guilt and shame and to feelings of pleasure that might be related to the abuse also. I'd like to speak personally here again, if I may. Recently, I've come to see that one of the ways I most strongly separate myself from life and collude with the legacy of abuse is in my relationship with struggle. Because so much of life has been difficult and challenging, the fact and truth of struggle has become one of the most clear ways in which I have defined myself. In relationship with struggle, I've developed a sense of self and an inner identity. Recently, the struggle has at times fallen away, and I'm left with the heartbreaking realization that it is fundamentally difficult for me to simply enjoy the easier times, to revel in the lack of struggle, and to enjoy the holiday. For the mind, <clears throat> the mind seems to panic in the unfamiliarity of ease and often tries to create some sort of struggle with which it can then grapple in good and old familiar ways. I'm so grateful that I have the meditation practice which helps me see these subtle aspects of the conditioning that is there. Coming to terms with loving kindness and acceptance with every facet of the legacy that we carry. For me, one of the most difficult aspects of the abuse is truly accepting that it really happened. Notwithstanding the clear recollections and memories, for a long time I didn't believe it actually did take place. Not believing can be a protective mechanism for holding back the full impact of the violence. In my experience, with a deepening acknowledgement of the truth of the abuse, come strong feelings of abandonment, betrayal, rage and sadness for all the ways I'd been hurt. In times of confusion, struggle and chaos and strong emotions, I try to remember to give this pain a love and respect that I did not receive all those years ago, or what those who abused me probably didn't know in their lives either. I love the image of difficulty and challenge being the compost out of which healing emerges, and I try to bring this to mind during the hard times. 
I recently have come to engage that part of me that believes I will ultimately be rescued from the suffering. The origin of this hope lies in the desperation of the infant yearning for deliverance from its hell. This was a survival mechanism, a protection against hopelessness. As I engage the legacy of abuse and am able to take deeper responsibility for the healing, the idea of the rescuer dies and falls away. It is a death that, in my experience, is fundamentally empowering. For in its dying, it becomes possible to take full responsibility for life and for healing. As I taste interludes of freedom from the abuse, which is a new experience for me, the impetus for healing escalates. There is powerful resolve never ever to subject myself to what I suffered all those years ago and since. Feels like a movement from life a struggle to life a celebration. And it seems to have much to do with contentment and the acceptance of both what happened and of how things are now. And yet it is still immensely difficult at times. I don't in any way want to create the impression that I'm through the storm. Perhaps the healing never ever stops. Understanding the connection between current behaviors and the abuse is difficult, but seems vital and important to acknowledge. Recognizing that one's interpersonal relationships can reflect the distortions of the effects of the abuse is difficult and for me sad, but very important to work with. It's challenging. Can we be truly patient and forgiving with patterns of behavior where perhaps we see how deeply we yearn to be in control of everything? or we feel an ever-present need to have space of all kinds in our lives. For me, the origins of these patterns lie directly in what happened, and they are a part of what arises in life for me now. Do I accept these? Do I judge them? Or do I fight them? I realize, too, that I am capable of hurting others in the self-same way that I was hurt. And I accept this more and more now. And with the protection of mindfulness and care, I know that I shan't ever act out of this process of conditioning again. Can all of this wiring be there without self-recrimination and without self-hatred? And then the issue of boundaries really pivotal in healing from abuse and difficult often, particularly for us meditators. We go on retreats and we hear uplifting words about opening to the suffering of all beings, of living with openness and compassion and love. And then we come out and we sit down in the dining room beside somebody and we find that their energy is driving us nuts or that they touch us in a way that we don't like or they say something which feels instinctually objectionable and disrespectful. For so many of us, we feel paralyzed by our wish on the one hand to hold a clear sense of boundary 
and on the other hand, not to be hurtful. The sensitivity that comes with meditation, certainly in my experience, I found, alerts one sooner and sooner when one's sense of feeling of boundary is being violated. As we live life with clearer parameters and perimeters, this is often threatening to others, both because they perhaps have difficulties with boundaries themselves, or we no longer fit the mold into which others hold us. Yet having a clearly defined sense of boundary is a powerful ritual of compassion, both for ourselves and for others. For the abused person, it can heal the fundamental transgression that happened so long ago. The meditation enables us to be acutely sensitive to what is appropriate and supportive in terms of one's edges. I feel that everything in the meditation practice that needs to arise on this journey of healing and recovery will do so in its own way, in its own time, and in the natural unfolding of things. And this is one of those moments from hell where the wrong card is in the wrong place. <laughs> so if you thought there was a bit of a leap there, there was. <laughs> Boy, I was... <laughs> oh well, just a little deep breathing. <laughs> Okay. For me, I initially set boundaries with a lot of fear, sometimes anger, and very often with a lot of charge. But slowly it has become more possible for me to do this with a feeling of alignment of purpose and a clear comprehension of the circumstances, and with a forcefulness appropriate to the situation. In relationship to boundaries, I've been deeply called to inner compassion and to great patience. Lastly, I'd like to speak about what for many people is one of the most difficult aspects of the abuse, forgiveness. And I refer you to a talk that I gave, I think it was the first talk that I gave here on forgiveness a number of years ago. For me, through every facet of the healing, runs the thread of forgiveness. Ten years after I began engaging the legacy of abuse, forgiveness is still a central practice for me. Over these years of opening to the process of conditioning and the related heartbreak and suffering, I find it easier at times to extend forgiveness even to those who hurt me. Seeing and acknowledging the myriad ways I have intentionally and unintentionally hurt others, makes it more possible to hold those who hurt me with loving kindness and compassion. It's been my experience that a further perspective that brings forth forgiveness is the extent to which there is a knowing of the basic emptiness of the whole process that we've been exploring this evening. That ultimately there is no Gavin no abused, no abuser, just suffering, conditioning, phenomena. Sometimes from this perspective I found that all that prevents 
the free flowing of forgiveness falls away. Furthermore, I see that the development of equanimity supports the letting go of blame and unforgiveness. We see in meditation that what is absolutely true is that all beings are the heirs of their karma. Our happiness depends on our actions, not our wishes or the wishes of anyone else. In this knowing, we instinctively may let go of all that gridlocks us into the pain and torment and the nightmare of those who hurt us. For me, forgiveness embraces the qualities of caring, allowing, compassion, and loving-kindness. And it seems that awareness these days often comes with a full sense of forgiveness as I'm open to moments and what they bring. But as I said, for many people the issue of forgiveness is understandably very difficult. I certainly have had my problems with the practice too. Certain truths of forgiveness have been important to me over these years, and I'd like to share them briefly with you. Forgiveness is on no level a condoning of something that never, ever should have happened. How could we possibly say yes to rape, to violence, to oppression, to torture, murder, and abuse? That would be unthinkable. Forgiveness is a strength and maturity of mind that enables us with wisdom and compassion to let go of all that gridlocks us into the nightmare of those who, for whatever reason, hurt us so long ago. Sometimes in the practice of forgiveness, it is not possible to extend forgiveness. This needs to be okay too. Opening to a heart that is closed is a full and perhaps even a more important practice than the extending of forgiveness itself. And so if you choose to use the forgiveness practice, begin by extending it to what Stephen Levine calls the lightweights, the five-pounders. And so begin by forgiving oneself, asking for forgiveness, and then directing forgiveness towards others in a measured and careful way. In closing, I'd like to say that it is my strong sense that ultimately we must, as adults, again leave home in a deeper and more complete way than we did earlier in our lives. I'd like to share with you the writing of Wayne Muller, who is a psychotherapist and meditator who lives in California. He says, in leaving home, we leave behind the limited understandings that our family teachings gave us about life, joy, abundance, compassion, and grace. These teachings were not limited because our parents were bad or evil. Our parents were simply human and could never be more than they were. The story is told of Jesus sitting in front of a crowd teaching. His mother and brothers arrived to beg him to come home. Because of the size of the crowd, they could not reach him. So they sent someone to give Jesus a message that his family was waiting for him. Jesus turned to the messenger and said, I have no family. I have no mother and brothers. These who are with me, these are my family and my mother and my brothers. 
And to some it may seem like an act of cruelty, yet in many ways it was a gesture of great compassion. For in that moment Jesus set both parent and child free, liberating each to seek the path of their own heart. Jesus was honoring the tremendous shift we must make to allow the biological shift we must make to allow our family to fall away as we begin our own path to God. Not out of anger or rage, not as punishment for what they did to us, rather out of love for who we all are, to set each of us free from the limitations of our family drama. The words of Jesus were echoed earlier by the Buddha who said, I was never born, nor had I parents. Or by the fourth century samurai who said, I have no parents, I make the heaven and earth my parents. I have no home, I make awareness my home. It is incredible to reflect on the fact that we live in a world of people who largely live their lives on the basis often of trauma of some kind. So many beings were hurt and then suffer away their lives within the shadow of that violence, perhaps even perpetuating the cycle of violence that hurt them. All the distraction and avoidance in our world speaks, I feel, to the pain that is there of all kinds. So many abused girls and boys live their lives in the bodies of adult men and women, oblivious of the effects of history in their life now. Many of these people become the perpetrators of abuse as the cycle of violence keeps turning. For me, in this respect particularly, I feel the deepest gratitude for the meditation practice both in my own life and in the world. It seems clear, as I reflect, that in the willingness to let the sunshine of awareness fall equally upon every aspect of our lives, that everything that needs to arise will do so in its own way, in its own time, in the natural unfolding of things. This refuge in the truth of each moment is the highest faith, trusting that that which requires healing will emerge in an orderly way into the domain of the heart and mind for the return to fullness and wholeness, which is the birthright of all of us. I'd like to close with a poem by Inna Hughes. It's called A Prayer for Children. She says, we pray for children who put chocolate fingers everywhere, who like to be tickled, who stomp in puddles and ruin their new pants, who sneak popsicles before supper, who erase holes in math workbooks, who can never find their shoes. And we pray for those who stare at photographers from behind barbed wire. Those who can't bound down the street in a new pair of sneakers. Who never counted potatoes. Who are born in places we wouldn't be caught dead.
who never go to the circus, who live in an X-rated world. We pray for children who bring us sticky kisses and fistfuls of dandelions, who sleep with the dog and bury the goldfish, who hug us in a hurry and forget their lunch money, who cover themselves with band-aids and sing off-key, who squeeze toothpaste all over the sink, who slurp their soup. <laughs> and we pray for those who never get dessert, who have no safe blanket to drag behind them, who watch their parents watch them die, who can't find any bread to steal, who don't have any rooms to clean up, whose pictures aren't on anybody's dresser, whose monsters are real. We pray for children who spend all their allowance before Tuesday, who throw tantrums in the grocery store and picket their food, who like ghost stories, who shove dirty clothes under the bed and never rinse out the tub, who get visits from the tooth fairy, who don't like to be kissed in front of the carpool, who squirm in church and scream on the phone, whose tears we sometimes laugh at and whose smiles can make us cry. And we pray for those whose nightmares come in the daytime, who will eat anything, who have never seen a dentist, who aren't spoiled by anyone, who go to bed hungry and cry themselves to sleep, who love and move but have no being. We pray for children who want to be carried and for those who must, for those we never give up on and for those who don't get a second chance, for those we smother and for those who will grab the hand of anybody kind enough to offer it. Thank you. May we sit together, please. May the meditation in all its simplicity and beauty lead us to the healing that we took birth for. May all beings be free from suffering. May starvation on our planet end. Thank you.
pleasure. Well, this is a time for any discussion and questions, responses that needs to happen. Yeah. I'd like to just affirm that this is a discussion, not necessarily a back and forth. So anybody that feels like they'd like to respond is very welcome to. My experience is that one of the pitfalls of the meditation practice is that it sounds so neat and clear that, you know, all that we need to do is sit and see the arising and passing away of mind moments, whether they're fear or anything else, and that we do in our work. And I think that that is an important aspect of relating, say, to these times in the morning when there's a lot of fear. But it might be that for some time you might also consider, you know, other therapies for dealing with it. You know, it's like when you were talking, I had a sense of something that happened for me that for a long time I felt like because I'd found the Dharma and it meant so much to me that I felt like the Dharma, if my refuge was absolutely cast in the, in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, then I wouldn't necessarily need anything else, you know? And that it might be that the practice is serving some other process that you might need to consider working with along with the meditation. But I think in the meditation, the thing to watch for are the thoughts like, this is a process that I need to go through, because what that implies is that it's a sort of, you know, it has life in time, and time is an illusion. There is just moment to moment. And that we can, I feel, gridlock ourselves into the idea that I need to go through a process, and we can find, perhaps, that we're so invested in the idea that we need to go through a process that we actually, in that way, prolong whatever it is that's coming up. So, you know, it's also my experience with the abuse that there are times when the terror is so great. Like on this last retreat that I was on, there were days when the terror was certainly stronger than it's ever been before. And the instruction for me was to actually read a book. That I needed to at times get away from it so that I could come back. And then I would get completely away. I was reading The Hobbit. And, <laughs> and then I would come back to it kind of renewed and able to have a heart that was more open rather than, God, there's this terror, this fear, you know. 
So I think you might want to perhaps consider exploring along with the meditation practice other um, therapies and options that there might be. I mean, for example, my experience with the with dealing with abuse is that it's been very comforting to be with people who experience the same thing. I mean, there are such similarities in the patterning of conditioning that in a way a kind of diffuses it and in some way dismantles the drama that we might create around what's going on when we realize that this is something everybody needs to go through and some people have really, you know, gone some distance with it, and that's really inspiring. So if you are isolated in what you're dealing, and it sounds between four and six in the morning, you possibly are, you might want to consider options where you don't feel so isolated. Because isolation was also, it might be coming up that early because you're, you know, isolated. And that's the exact situation that happened earlier in your life. You were isolated and this happened, you know. So... My experience is that creativity with it is really important, you know. And to hold carefully any rigid ideas of what the practice is and the practice is not. Because for a lot of people who are dealing with abuse, the practice is very broad. Because it needs to deal often with emotions and difficulties that are very, very strong. Usually a lot stronger than most people deal with who aren't, who don't have that sort of history. My therapist said that abused people are like a species on their own, you know. Is that helpful? What you said about memories, do you have memories? You don't have memories, is that right? You know, it's hard to say if they're memories. Yeah. Are you in process with somebody? Yeah. That's great. Okay. Are you responding? Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering, is this when you're sleeping or when you're sitting? When I'm lying, when I'm just lying in bed. And, and do you, uh, I'm just wondering whether you sort of feel like you can't move but you want to. The reason, the reason I'm asking is that um, carries like that in the state just before waking fully, uh, sometimes associated with uh, hypnagogic, what's called hypnagogic things, and, and involves some specific form of sleep disturbance, which may be something uh, that you could discuss with not just a therapist or a meditation instructor, but somebody who is uh, particularly versed in. Uh, sleep disturbance. It may actually be associated with that because feelings of terror are often associated with that. Um, I work with children who have been sexually abused and I know that you're not a therapist but and I've heard from, I know it's sort of a therapeutic, I'm learning about how therapists work with children but I'm interested to, in, just from the wisdom you've gained of Looking back, um, what do you think you might have wished was there for you when you were a child if somebody might have been talking to you about it? 
Well, you know, that quote that I read about Wayne Mahler, which says that our parents couldn't do more than they did, they were behaving in the only way that they could, you know. I mean, you know, I could have all sorts of fantasies about the, the way I would like things to have been, you know. That's not exactly oh, what I'm asking. Yeah. I'm saying it's, as for me as a therapist working with children, just do you have any wisdom to share that might oh, okay. children who are dealing with it? Um, one thing I find is that a lot of the children I talk to don't want to talk about it, and I have mm. a real question about whether to push them to talk about it or to respect their and their denial mm. that their needs are acted as if it didn't happen, if that defense is going to serve them in the future in their life, um, or is it in some way going to interfere? I mean, the things that I would love to have heard would have been to have someone in my life who affirmed that I had every right to say no, that if I don't want to speak about this, I don't have to, that I am worthwhile and precious and beautiful, and that who I am is perfect, and that nobody has any right to hurt me, and that if the people in my life who are supposed to be there to protect me are not, then there are other people that will protect me. And it might be that when you start affirming the child in ways that it probably never has been, that, you know, it's a question of trust. I mean, you know, I see how difficult it is for me to fundamentally trust people. I mean, it's very unusual for me to completely trust, virtually non-existent. There's always a part of me in reserve, and the reserve is that the people closest to me in my life hurt me, you know? And so when trust is shattered that early, it just becomes the deepest conditioning, you know? So I think probably going at it from the direction of creating trust, and then what will come forward will come forward if it needs to. I would say that trying to bring to the surface memories and issues and discussions that they're not yet ready to give is another kind of violence. You know? And so and also, you know, respect for the child. Like I have friends who are bringing up children so respectfully and I cry when I see them being respectful to a two year old, you know? just really honoring that child's experience and attitudes and tantrums and stuff. And so maybe as someone working with kids, those are perhaps the most important thing. And then if they feel safe to come forward, they will. And if not, then it's just not ready and you just need to kind of, I guess, need to accept that, you know? Um. I've tried to meditate off and on for roughly eight years, and I feel like I get to this point, and then I hit terror, and, and, and the voices come up, you know, stop, go, go left, go right, you know, it's all this myriad of directions. Um, currently, I'm meditating through exercise, and through caring for my plants and my dog. Um, I'd like to get into something quieter and, and more well, you know, the thing that happens, I was reading an article a while ago where they said that, that the population of people that have been abused are the most psychic people in the world. They're the people that see the most UFOs, you know, they're the people that go on extraterrestrial journeys. 
The reason why is very plain and simple. It's like when, you know, when you're a baby, and I'm not saying that this is what happened, but when you're a baby and there's violence being done to you, you leave, you know? So, you know, sometimes I feel, and, you know, and this is addressing your question too, sometimes I feel like this practice, which is about the arising and passing away of appearances and empty phenomena and stuff, is at times inappropriate for people dealing with abuse. What they need is to be grounded. They need to be brought down. They need to feel the earth. You know, it might be that your meditation is actually digging a hole and just feeling the ground there, you know, feeling your feet going through, playing with your, you know, watching your plants and putting your fingers in the dirt and just grounding yourself because, you know, people that abuse largely are people that have been disconnected from roots, both their family roots, their own roots, the roots of community, because all of those were shattered, you know. I wanted to respond to one, uh, I had another thought. When I'm on retreat and off retreat, what I do now when I have periods of terror, like yesterday for a while, a couple of hours, it was just up, strong terror. Part of it, I think, is related to this talk. You know, it just, you know, it just brings it up. <laughs> Did you notice me perspiring? Um, what I do is I have a great big teddy bear, and this might sound really corny, but I hold that bear and I say, I care about your pain. I care about your pain. I care, I care, I care. And what, for me, that is doing is I'm not marginalizing what's happening. I'm not diminishing what's happening. I am giving that pain as great a loving acceptance as I can possibly bring to it. And my experience is that is a world apart from all the ways that we most often usually deal with terror. And so in whatever way is appropriate for you, you might want to consider just holding yourself and saying that you care. Because in all likelihood, that in itself is contradicting a lot of what happened, you know, just that you're there for yourself, that you care that much, you know. And uh, that is one of the principal practices that I do when I go on retreat, is I have a period of each day where I lie in the bed and I just say, I care about your pain, I care, you know. I mean, some of the pain that, that, that I deal with is related to the HIV, you know. But the line is blurred. I mean, I most often don't know which is which anymore. So it's just the pain, you know. But the pain can be excruciating. And just saying, I care about this pain. I care, you know. And usually when that terror comes up, for me, it's I mean, it feels like it's going to totally destroy me. It feels like it's an annihilating terror. And sometimes I dialogue with it, you know. And that's what I did yesterday, and it really worked. You know, I said, okay, now tell me exactly what's going on here, you know. And then I speak, and I go back and forth, and then I got clearer of the causes of it. And they were pretty innocuous causes, but for some reason they just happened to push the buttons. And, you know, if we hold visions of what the fruits of meditation are like, you know, like they sort of cosmic jolts and, and you know, deep, splendid, magnificent insights, those happen or don't happen, but sometimes it's just in something really basic that when the terror is there, 
just grabbing the bear and saying, nothing is more important in this moment than just holding myself with love, you know. And sometimes the thought, I should meditate, you know, I should be able to see the arising and passing away of this, can be a way of kind of pushing it away, you know. I hope that's helpful. There, there is a, something that one can do with um, wanting to be sitting a little more, but not to a different kind of sitting, and it's the body scan or the sweeping meditation. And a lot of people who have had a lot of trauma, uh, for them it's a good way to approach meditation and to do like three weeks or whatever every day of that. And John Kabat-Zinn is one who teaches that and the movie <coughs> tape upstairs, an audio tape of it, of a body scan that you can follow. Or probably it's in his book. Mm-hmm. What you do is you just go through different parts of the body just to feel them as they are. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's the work that needs to be done to ground the body, not get in the mind. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I wanted to ask um, if you struggled um, a lot to, to be perfect. And, um, <laughs> 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 you know, just accept that, that you make mistakes. I, I mean, like, I get really upset when I make mistakes mm. still. Maybe I've got some good friends in this room. Maybe you can ask them how, how perfect. Oh, yeah, it's definitely one of them, too. I mean, trying to be perfect, because the only way I could survive boarding school was to be as perfect as possible, and I was. I was great, you know, because I didn't want to attract any attention to myself, you know. So if I was really a good boy at boarding school and a good boy at home, didn't tell anybody about the difficulty, didn't rock the boat, then I survived. So, yeah. And then again, you know, we come to meditation practice and we hear all these talks about the precepts and all of that. And I think that we need to be really careful how we hold these precepts because we can kind of hold them in a way that we try and then be perfect in our precepts. And I feel like the essence of the meditation is a letting go into a kind of living of the precepts that is not trying to be perfect, but really trying to work with them. And so even in meditation, we can try and be perfect, you know. And it's really important to not see, you know, to, to see that and hopefully let go of that tendency. And also, can I just ask you, yeah. um, do you still have um, feelings of not feeling safe and um, trouble being alone? Um, I sometimes have an instinctual feeling if I'm with somebody when it doesn't feel safe. Mm-hmm. And, and I really listen to that, mm-hmm. which is new for me, you know, because the system is so sensitive now for whatever reason, partly because of the AIDS virus, but partly because for some people that have been abused, we kind of freeze open, and so we just feel a lot, you know. And so sometimes I just know that I need to remove myself from a situation or end a phone call or not respond 
to something right away and come back when I feel more balanced. And it's been really difficult to trust that because I want to be like everybody else, mm -hmm. you know? But coming to accept that, I, for me, I need to question how much I like to be on my own because I love being on my own. Like I went on holiday last, uh, this year, um, and I was on my own, and it was wonderful. It was, it was really wonderful. And people said, well, weren't you lonely? Wouldn't you like to have had a friend? And I really had to think, well, it might have actually been fun to have somebody to share. I like snorkeling, and this was a place I could snorkel. It would have been fun to have somebody to share the fish with, you know? But I have no problem being alone, but the edge for me actually is to be more connected because I disconnected at boarding school. I was a loner at boarding school and I've been a loner for a lot of my life, which means that I think some of my behaviors reflect that and I need to actually interact more. So it's a balance. I also need to not be too much with people because I need to kind of protect, you know, so it's sort of a, it's a dance. Yeah. What did you mean by cruise open? Um, I think that most people um, have, I don't know, if anybody can put this into a Buddhist sort of context, I'd be grateful, I can't. But I think that some people have an instinctual, almost like a psychic ability to open and to close, you know, that, you know, there's almost a mechanism there. If the situation is not healthy, you know, they close. And I think that's very healthy. And I think that's why, you know, um, we sit and we do a retreat for however long, and after a while, things begin to emerge and come up because we need to close down to or in order to get on with our daily life, you know, and to function. Now, I sometimes find it actually quite difficult to function because it feels like things are just coming up too quickly. And so that's what I mean by freezing open. Like you can't close. Yeah. And my acupuncturist tries to work with that. You know, I know there's some acupuncturists here. Tries to, to give me a sense of boundary and uh, you know, a sense of just being able to close because it's a pretty rough world to be open to all the time, you know. So then I go into isolation, but it's not for a healthy reason. It's, it's somewhat out of fear and, you know, yeah, and protection. <sighs> it's difficult, isn't it? Is it a difficult talk to listen to? <laughs> but also very affirming. Yeah? Yeah, it's difficult but affirming, I think. Um, a lot of you know, talking about experiences that we have. Yeah. There was something I said where everybody laughed in the talk, and I was, I was just wondering why. I don't know if anybody can remember the exact part of the talk. What's that? Oh no, it was something else I said. Oh, it was about struggle. It was about how I, how I, um, I'm, I'm easier with struggle than with sort of joy. And, 
Was there laughter because yeah. people saw that in themselves? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so you weren't laughing at me. No. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? We create yeah. It's it's just interesting to know, you know, what the. Uh, does somebody have a question? Um, what brought you to the decision to speak to your mother about about the abuse and, and you know what was what was the process? You I mean, did you ever consider not telling her to scare her? And just what what kind of click? What, what did you feel you needed when you decided to take that risk? Hmm. So the question is, for those of you who didn't hear, was what was the decision, how did I make the decision to tell my mother? Well, at first, I told both my mother and my father, because my father was alive, and that was at the time that I went to the boarding school. I'd sat this long retreat here and in England and on the West Coast, and that's when all the boarding school stuff emerged. And I just knew that I didn't any longer want to have this secret in the family. And that part of the pain was feeling how much in our family we never talked about anything. I mean, in my childhood, I can't remember a single time when as a family we sat around the table and discussed and came to a group decision. You know, my father was usually sort of red-eyed and sort of gruff and angry after any number of whiskeys. And my mother, my brother, and I were terrified that we would push a button and he would explode. And that really was the tone of the only time that we were all together. There was never any. But a process started after meditating where I started tackling my father's feeling like he owned me and started confronting him and sort of attenuating myself from him. And I knew that I needed to speak to them. And it wasn't difficult because I was saying to them, you sent me to this boarding school and this is what happened. You know? And they were very upset because they thought that it was the greatest kindness that they ever did. And I said to them, you never asked me if I was happy. They said, well, you never told us that you weren't. I said, well, we never ever discussed anything. So how was I to break form and say, you know, I really don't want to go to boarding school, you know? So it felt great. There was a sort of a defiance about it too. I mean, I, I felt like I did it caringly, but it was also kind of knowing that I, I needed to move out of that. And that you were willing to take the consequences yeah. of their receipt of that information. Right. But later, my father died and, you know, it was hard for my mom because my dad died and six months later I was diagnosed HIV positive. And she had a lot of knocks. And then she came over and we did therapy together. And I just was very angry with her about having sent me to boarding school and kind of let that happen. They sent me to boarding school because I was too sensitive. They wanted to toughen me up. You know? <laughs> Uh, I was there from when I was about eight until I was 16. They took me there and they dropped me off at this boarding school with my piano accordion, which I hated. 
and they walked me to the middle of all these kids that were sitting around in uniforms with white uh, straw hats and black and white blazers and gray trousers and ties and said, this is Gavin and he's going to play the piano accordion for you. Whereupon I played, you know, Fascination and Tammy, you know. <laughs> and they all just, oh my God, you know. So it was almost like right from the beginning I was like this jerk, you know. And they drove off, you know. And for three months I was there, you know. Um, now, after my dad died, my mom came over and I, and I needed to tell her how I felt because a lot was coming up now. And my therapist was really great, and I told her, you need to listen. And she just said, please forgive me, please forgive me. You know, and she was crying. And I said, no, I said, you just need to hear me out. And I said everything, I shouted at her. And then she like completely broke down and started telling me about her childhood, which she'd not shared with anybody. And it was a nightmare. I mean, she was also abused in a really horrible way. And her whole infancy was just hell, you know? And she'd not told my father, she'd not told anyone. I was the first person, you know? So I was able to forgive her, you know? I mean, it just came. It wasn't thought about, it wasn't practice. It was just, it was like she did great, you know? Then I started realizing that it actually started a lot earlier. And, and then I thought, well, do I tell her? You know, I mean, sh she's dealt with my father. She's dealt with my diagnosis. She's had, you know, the session. But what was also true was that we were closer than we'd ever been before. We were like buddies, you know. We were like allies. And she was like right there with me. And I thought, you know, I can't not tell her this because it wouldn't be honoring the journey that we've begun. So I told her about it. I told her who, do, who, who did it. And it was very, very difficult for her. I mean, it was shattering. But she listened and she cried and we're closer again, you know. And she's, she's right there beside me. She's 10,000 miles away, but we talk often. I go and see her again in February for six or seven weeks, you know, and we're together a lot of that time, and it's wonderful, you know. I mean, there's stuff, but it's really nice, too. There's stuff anyway. Yeah, but, you know, I wouldn't say that blanket we need to blurt out, you know. I think that there probably are situations where it's appropriate and inappropriate, but I think that if it's possible, it's very freeing for everybody, you know. My mom was able to unburden herself, you know, in a way that she'd never done. She'd been carrying it for 70 years. It seems like so many of us are kind of making this journey and kind of dragging along our parents <laughs> in different ways, you know. Are there any further reflections, thoughts, questions, responses? I just want to thank you for a deeply sensitive and very moving talk to me. And I appreciate the time you put into it. Thank you.
It was a lot easier giving this talk than I thought because it's just a very, very loving community. And uh, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.